Hey, this is Seng Yeo from the ASEAN Speaks editorial team, and welcome back to our show this week. As US 10-year Treasury yields continue to compress, which admittedly even surprised our economics team, we seek advice from our fixed income strategists as to what is driving this compression, and if that compression is due to technical or fundamental factors. I think uh, su- uh, supply and demand technical also matters because, um, as we know, the Fed total holdings of securities is huge, it's very sizable, it has doubled compared to the pre-COVID level. And I would say since the COVID crisis, the Fed Reserve has bought almost all the net supply of the Treasury notes and bonds. And they are still buying at 80 billion per month for Treasury securities and 40 billion per month for MBS. This is a very significant anchoring effect on yields. Back in ASEAN and starting with Malaysia, the extended MCO lockdown and heightened state of uncertainty on the political front will have varying degrees of impact on different industries. Which industries will hold up better? That is the million-dollar question and one that Anand Pakmakandan, Regional Head of Equities Research, will attempt to address. Over in Thailand, the Phuket Sandbox did not kick off without a hitch, as one of the visitors from the UAE, who was among the first batch of tourist arrivals, was found to be infected with COVID. Does this derail the October 21st reopening plans that the Thai government has set? And what are its broader implications to the hospitality sector? Our stock focus this week will be on Thai banks, where we will get a preview of the 2Q earnings and run through Maybank's top picks for the sector. So stay tuned and enjoy the program. I will hand you over to Chua Bin, who is co-head of our macroeconomics research desk, to moderate the show from here on. Hakbin, over to you. Yeah, it's um, Monday, 12th July. So let's kick off first with Suhaimi. So Suhaimi, so I think Bank Bara left the policy rate unchanged. Even the politics did not move the needle, as you said. So any other key takeaways from the decision and statement or hints of a future rate cut if things worsen? Morning, Abin and everyone. Bank Negara's decision last Thursday to keep OPR at record low 1.75% was in line with our call and consensus expectations. Uh, monetary policy statement indicated significant downside risk to growth due to restrictions and lockdowns to contain the uh, surge in COVID-19 cases. But at the same time, uh, Bank Negara reiterated the mitigation and cushion from uh, global economic recovery, economic stimulus measures, as well as progress in uh, vaccinations. Um, what this means overall is we think uh, Bank Negara will announce a downward revision in official full year uh, real GDP forecast, currently at 6% to 7.5% range. Uh, we expect this to happen next month when second quarter 2021 GDP number is released on 13 August. We are keeping our call of no change in OPR for the rest of the year and well into next year. And at the moment, pricing in 25 basis point hike only in fourth quarter of next year. But uh, BNM has room to cut OPR if situation warrants it. Uh, the central bank indicated back in March uh, when it released its uh, annual report, the effective lower bound of OPR is slightly above zero without specifying any figure, which means OPR can go sub 1% if that's what's needed. So there's a dovish signal. But um, yeah. I saw the unemployment rate came up last week as well for in May, uh, fallen for fourth month in a row to 4.5%. Uh, but still high, I guess, versus the pre-pandemic average of 3.3%. So what's driving the improvement and can it be sustained given the worsening COVID situation and the lockdown? 
the improvement has been driven by job increases in services like wholesale and retail trade, food and beverages, education, health and social work activities, as well as uh, manufacturing, which uh, offset drops in construction, agriculture and mining sector jobs. Uh, employment growth also has been supported by hiring incentive programs, which are part of the economic stimulus package. But uh, there is near-term upside risk to jobless rate, or at least the downtrend in monthly unemployment rates in February may be halted in the near term as the country went into another round of lockdown since June. And hinting at this, retrenchments jumped 50% month-on-month in June after steadily falling month-on-month since February in line with the earlier trend in unemployment rate. Uh, we expect unemployment rate to average slightly higher at 4.7% this year versus 4.5% last year. Okay, thanks, Rami. Um, let's bring in Anand. I think the KLC has taken a knock last week, uh, well, last two weeks with the rise in the COVID cases, stricter lockdowns, and all the political noises. So what are you seeing in terms of how companies are coping with MCO, uh, like for example, glove firms, and where are investors shifting their funds into? Yeah, hi. Good morning, Hugman. Good morning, guys. So it's, it's been a, a tough time for the KLCI of late, uh, tougher than usual. So it continues to trend down on the, you know, un, pretty much relentless negative news in terms of, of the uh, uh, lockdown, uh, as well as the political situation. We're just trying to feed into each other uh, in terms of this uh, sort of this uh, vicious cycle, uh, which is really uh, dampening uh, sentiment. I think when you look at the market, uh, you know, investors are really at a loss. Uh, we are seeing sectors which we once thought would be quite uh, defensive or actually beneficiaries of uh, a prolonged sort of uh, pandemic situation, like the glove sector, like you mentioned, uh, to be quite immune from this, you know, lockdowns and, and uh, uh, MCOs. But, you know, now we're seeing the reality of it is that there is so much uncertainty and chaos in terms of the government's approach to this lockdown. And it is such a blunt instrument that even the glove factories have been forced to close down uh, in the EMCO areas. So this is a big differentiating factor, right, between uh, in the growth stock space or the exporter space. Exporters who are based outside of Slangor, where the EMCOs are based, uh, are being implemented, appear to be a lot uh, more secure uh, than those like the glove stocks who have their factories uh, in Slangor and KL, uh, where we are seeing the EMCOs being implemented. So... You know, the, the news, again, there remains quite negative in the sectors like gloves uh, and also broader manufacturing, uh, construction as well, where a lot of the activities are in the Klang Valley, where the EMCOs are in place and work is pretty much halted. Uh, you know, you're going to see pretty big uh, revisions to earnings coming through there unless the situation changes very soon. So I think when you ask me about where the defensive sectors are, uh, they are few and far between, unfortunately. You know, you have the traditional defensive sectors uh, like telcos, like utilities, uh, even there we might see some slight earnings erosion. Uh, but then you also have the uh, tech space uh, where you know, most of the manufacturing is based out of Penang, which may be going into phase two uh, this week. So that's some good news there, and, and that, that should remain a, a pretty strong sector as well. So you know, beyond that, uh, I think uh, most of the other sectors are, are continue to be quite vulnerable. Uh, just quickly, an answer for electronics and plantations. Do you think that we are as well by the EMCO? Yeah, plantations. We just got word over the new, you know, weekend with you know, dramatic headlines in the in the press about you know the sector being close to collapse because they can't source foreign workers. I don't think you know that in itself is a is a very valid headline. 
because uh, it will cut into output. And Chi Wei, uh, no, sorry, Chi Ching has done a lot of work on this. You know, it will cut into output. But the fact remains for the commodity sectors in, in Malaysia, um, you know, such as uh, plantations and oil and gas, the environment remains quite good despite these uh, selective headwinds like the foreign worker situation in, in plantations because commodity prices are well above uh, any expectations uh, at the start of the year uh, and remain above our assumptions for the full year as well. So I think commodities uh, will be okay. And I think manufacturing or electronics, uh, the fact that most of the factories, for the listed companies at least, uh, being outside of Slangor, that will be a very big uh, positive for them as well, the longer this lockdown drags on. Thanks, Anand. Um, let's bring in Winston. So I think Winston, um, well, the US bond yields have, uh, have been falling, uh, contrary to my expectations and, and I think many of the uh, market expectations as well. So what's driving this, uh, I guess, falls has inflation fears receded? Is uh, global growth slowing? Or is the move due to more to technical factors? Hi, morning, Harpin. I think it's due to a combination of both technical and fundamental. Because fundamentally, there has been some concerns about the spread of the Delta variants and uh, other new variants as well, which I think has led to market reducing some of the optimism being priced on growth and inflation. If you look at the market measure of long-term inflation expectation, the 10-year break-even rate, it has fallen by about 30 bips from the peak in May. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell has been downplaying the concern about inflation, uh, saying that it's going to be transitory due to supply bottlenecks and it will come down eventually. And on the other hand, I think uh, su uh, supply and demand technical also matters because um, as we know, the Fed total holdings of securities is huge. It's very sizable. It has doubled compared to the pre-COVID level. And I would say since the COVID crisis, the Fed Reserve has bought almost all the net supply of the Treasury notes and bonds. And they are still buying at $80 billion per month for Treasury securities and $40 billion per month for MBS. This is a very significant anchoring effect on yields. So how have the ASEAN bonds behaved with the dip in the US yield? ASEAN bonds performance, I would say, uh, has been mixed. Instead of following the Treasury yields uh, lower, Exactly. Uh, regional bonds overall, I would say, underperformed since June. For example, the 10-year yield has fallen by about 30-40 bips. At the same time, uh, Malaysia and Indonesia 10-year yield has only fallen by about 5 to 10 bips. And in fact, if you look at the high yielders like uh, Indonesia and India, they are up by more than 10 bips. So unlike the Treasury, regional bonds are not safe haven. As we know, there is a vaccination gap between developed market and emerging market. And going forward, there could be some divergence on recovery path. And also another consideration is the FX, um, which is a big component for total return uh, to foreign investor and FX, regional FX has been weakening. So in Malaysia, for example, foreign flows into the ringgit bond has been very strong. But if the FX outlook turns, the flow pattern is going to be uh, more choppy like, and could wave on the bond market. Okay, I guess which uh, ties nicely into our... Um... Question now for Andy, our FX strategy. Thanks, Vincent. So, Andy, what's the reason for the recent US dollar strength? And uh, will it be sustained for the rest of the year? Hi, uh, thanks, Halpin. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, at our view, generally, I think this dollar uh, sort of trajectory will, be, remain, will remain supported. Uh, but we're actually recommending to fade into it uh, as we approach end of the year. Um, but so far, the dollar strength has been on the back of a few things. Um, uh, first is the uh, COVID spread definitely is one in the region and then the Fed shifts um, on top of that the, of course on top of that would be the US labor related data 
uh, which actually uh, came out quite, um, uh, I mean, strong in some ways across the board uh, in terms of uh, initial job claims and others. Second would be in terms of uh, the light US dollar positioning, which could possibly see room for dollar longs to build up. Um, uh, and uh, like I mentioned earlier, the Delta variant uh, spread into other parts of the world, including Asia Pac, is weighing a bit on sentiment. So this uh, tighter restrictions, extended lockdowns and all that uh, have an impact. So altogether, the dollar strength could be a bit more pronounced, especially against Asia and Japan and the uh, antipodean sort of FX, which is the Aussie, Kiwi, the reservation uh, sort of currencies. In your latest uh, FX report, uh, you study which currencies are most sensitive and vulnerable to Fed typing. So what are the conclusions? Yeah, uh, th- that's uh, something that we continue continually try to look at. Uh, in fact, if you look at our table or chart, which shows, the, for example, Indonesian rupiah, uh, dollar IDR uh, sensitivity, uh, for example, we've, in our chart shows it rises almost close to about 3% with a, with a 100 basis points rise in the US Treasury 2 yield, which is the proxy that we use. What we found is that the IDR, for example, uh, yen and Korean one are expected to be the most vulnerable uh, given potential for carry trades to unwind. Uh, in particular, in ASEAN, would be IDR, Rupiah. Sen- high sensitivity to the high level of bond yields that they have and the dollar uh, sort of uh, demand there as well. And on top of that, the low growth uh, and, um, and uh, sort of low rates environment uh, that, um, that have been taken advantage of. So uh, that, that's something that we want to look out for in terms of the uh, unwinding on that front uh, in Asia. But on the, uh, the stronger ones uh, that will be least sensitive will be Aussie, Singh, and Kiwi, uh, based on our studies. Uh, they only depreciated by close to about 007 0.11%, given a 100 basis point rise in two-year uh, two yields. Okay, thanks, Andy. Thanks. Uh, let's bring in Talon. Talon, I like your title, uh, Singapore ESG Compendium um, Island in the Sun. Uh, but at the same time, Singapore faces big challenges from rising temperatures, rising seawater levels, food and water security risks. So um, what are the main themes in your pretty big report and companies that you're recommending that will offer strategic advantages in this transition to becoming more green? Yeah, morning, Hagwin. Yes, so well, Singapore does have significant ESG issues uh, from the physical threats, given the fact that it's a small island, so rising sea levels, food, water security, um, as well as health issues, uh, along with uh, governance issues and uh, social issues as well, uh, coming from the fact that, um, you know, you've got high dependence on migrant labor, um, you've got uh, female participation in terms of government, it's a a little bit low compared to other OECD countries, um, and as well as a uh, regional financial center, so that you know, the money laundering, terrorism, finance, all those issues as well. And I think what's interesting is, you know, COVID-19 is accelerating the trend towards towards, uh, transitioning to more sustainable assets. Investors are looking for transparency as well as quality at a time uh, when there's a lot of uncertainty. And high ESG scoring companies uh, offer that. So, when we actually did the screening for our ESG portfolio, we looked at three criteria. 
Number one, are these companies showing ESG, improving ESG momentum? In other words, are their ESG scores improving? Uh, do they have gearing towards ESG themes such as clean energy or waste uh, or lower emissions? And also, most importantly, do they actually facilitate or take part in uh, the transition to low carbon economies? Um, so when we actually triangulated all these three sort of criteria, uh, the top 10 names we came up with are AEM, AREIT, ComfortDelGro, DBS, MCT, MLT, SGX, TIBEV, UOB, and VMS. Um, so there is a little bit heavy towards the property uh, and the REIT names as well as financials, uh, which I think is probably the earliest, you know, the sort of earliest sort of assets to kind of move towards that transition uh, towards ESG. Hey, that was a pretty good, uh, comprehensive uh, and uh, substantial report. Yeah, so please take a look. Uh, thanks, Dylan. Uh, okay. Maria? So can you update on the Phuket reopening since 1st July? Because I think the headlines was just uh, having the news that Prime Minister Prayut you know, was, uh, was quarantined uh, after that uh, ceremony. And I suppose whether the pilot can be expanded to uh, other islands and tourist spots. Thank you, Hakmin. Uh, good morning, everyone. Yes, uh, as of yesterday, a total of 3,287 guests have reported they arrived. And according to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Slightly over 12K have applied for certificate of entry and over 6K have been approved. So we hope they will come. Uh, at this point, we are keeping the faith um, despite news flow starting to turn somewhat negative. For example, one of the first batch uh, was infected and 13 guests immediately decide to return to their homes. And then two more tourist children, by the way, this time aged eight and nine, respectively, have been added to the list. And then we have 11 in local infection. And then all schools in Phuket are closed until July 23rd after the surge in infection, but no number was mentioned. And then Phuket has seen its first Delta case. And this is uh, the one that is alarming to me because this variant has been quite virulent here in Thailand. The condition is that if infection hit 90 cases, uh, Phuket will be shut down. Uh, for now, three island destinations in Suratani province are gearing up to open on the 15th. That is Samui, Kotao, and Kopangan. Uh, this is called the Samui Plus model. Of the three, I think Samui Island is most likely, given that as of the 9th of July, 62% of its population has received their first job. Uh, at the peak in 2018, Samoy Island received 2.7 million tourists. So, Mary, just to clarify, if the threshold exceeds that, that, that number, which is 80 cases, um, all new visitors will be stopped. Uh, but does the whole island go into lockdown as well? Yes, 90 cases and lockdown one more, once more. Um, so, Mary, I think the second quarter earnings uh, for Thailand is coming up. Or do you expect it to hold up or disappoint, I guess, with, uh, with all these um, <laughs> you know, lockdowns and COVID? Yeah, uh, the full lockdown in uh, second quarter last year gives us a very favorable base of comparison. So, for the second quarter, I see the market's earnings bias to be positive, but likely to be slightly below expectations. Banks will kickstart, and we will see what the number is going to look like at the end of this month, and Chesida will brief you on that. Cyclicals in general will pull up the quarter's earnings and have the tendency to surprise on the upside. 
As for domestics and tourism plays, uh, there will also be growth year on year, but these sectors have the tendency to disappoint. And this is definitely not good for the market, uh, especially amidst another lockdown starting today on the red zones and also progressive rise in infection and death, which reduces the chance that Thailand can reopen in October. Um, let's bring in our Thai bank analyst, Jasada. So Jasada, I think the Thai banks have really lagged behind the recovery in the overall uh, stock market. So why the underperformance? Because the Thai banks have underperformed the market as the investors are concerned on the asset quality and net interest margin following the new wave of the COVID pandemic. And moreover, uh, the investors are also concerned on the potential outflow on the MSCI rebalancing on the large banks. So what's your view on upcoming bank earnings in the second quarter? Would that be a, you know, a catalyst for the bank stocks? Uh, and which banks are your high conviction picks? Well, uh, we expect the banks to report the second quarter earnings about uh, 35 billion baht. It's actually, it's up about uh, 53% year-on-year due to the lower credit cost. But earnings build up about 10% Q-on-Q due to the higher provisions and lower net interest margin. For the topic, now our topics are K-Bank for big banks and Tisco for the small bank. And we believe the bad news is priced in for the K-Bank after its share price fell about 25% since the first quarter this year. And we also like Tisco for the high earning visibility, solid balance sheet, and decent dividend yield. Can you highlight also what's going on in terms of the loan growth and as well uh, as the NPL uh, situation kind of uh, stabilized? I think loan growth in the second quarter is still okay due to the SAP soft loan. Yeah, but on the NPL, actually, I think the NPL should gradually increase. But NPL, I think it will increase uh, at least for three years as the bank will gradually release the, the, the NPL and set aside the credit cost for, for the upcoming uh, NPLs. Okay, thanks, Jasada. Uh, lastly, let's bring in Jackie, our Philippine strategist. Look, I think, Jackie, you know that the Philippine peso has been weakening up late and are stocking some concerns. Uh, so what's causing the weakness and should we be worried? Hi, good morning, Hafin. Um, so the peso weakened by about 3% um, after the June 16 U.S. Fed meeting, which seems to be reflective of the sentiment over the country's lower growth and higher inflation outlook. Um, however, there are positive offsetting factors, um, such as the declining COVID-19 daily cases, uh, modest recovery in the OFW remittances, and um, the BOP surplus outlook, um, leading our econ team to maintain a gentle downward sloping forecast for the Philippine peso. Which uh, sectors and companies uh, should benefit from this uh, weaker peso? Um, generally, a weaker peso should be positive for exporters, um, such as mining companies, um, and should generally be neutral for the domestically driven property, telco, retailing, and utility stocks. Given the evenly matched peso revenues and costs in these sectors, um, the built-in price adjustment mechanism also in these sectors, and um, the limited foreign denominated debt exposure of Philippine companies in general. So based on our runs, um, power companies such as Semerara Mining and Power, LPC Energy, and First Gen should generally see a 1% to 5% earnings uplift should the peso weaken um, by one peso more than um, our year-end forecast. And lastly, I just want to get an update on the COVID situation because I saw the Philippine numbers and it seems to be uh, all right or coming down, um, whereas you know, 
places like rising Thailand, rising Indonesia, rising Vietnam. So do you think um, you know the COVID has passed the worst, or is it just a, I guess a false dawn? Um, we are um, currently at the 5,000 level. Um, so yes, I agree that it's definitely improving. Um, I think the difference um, now is um, I get the government has still remained um, sort of like um, on high alert. So while there are some parts of the economy that has been reopening, um, tourist arrivals, for example, are still being monitored heavily. Um, I guess the focus now is making sure that we don't get the lamb the um, variant here in the Philippines because we already have detected cases of the Delta variant. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it's been improving mainly on the back of um, better implementation of the social distancing measures.